Well, here we are, July the 31st. That means we've done seven months in the book of Romans already. That's pretty good. And we've reached chapter 10. So let's read some verses to start with, shall we? From Romans chapter 10, and we'll start from verse 1. And it says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who, who believes. Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the deep, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Right, there's another half to the chapter, but I think that's quite enough to think about for a moment. So let's just start with that, shall we, and see where we go from there. Just to remind us of where we've been, what happens in Romans, you could divide into four different bits. Chapters 1 to 4 talks about the world's problem. The fact that everybody, whether they're Jewish or non-Jewish, are guilty before God. And the world is in a mess that it needs to get out of, and it can't do it by itself. The world has a problem. But God has an answer to that problem. And as far back as Abraham, he'd started putting that answer into place. And in the next section, 5 to 8, Paul talks about how God's answer works, how God justifies people, makes them right again when they've got no right to be justified, when they haven't achieved any status of perfection themselves, but God puts them right anyway. And it, it, chapters 5 to 8 talk about what this whole business does to us, the kinds of things it brings to your life. Now we're in the middle of chapters 9 to 11. Because after chapter 8, Paul stands back and says, okay, so he said, Jews and Gentiles are all in the same boat. Okay, well, how do Jews actually fit in? Because they are the chosen people of God, aren't they? And it's as if they've been swept aside so that the Gentiles can become Christians. But no, that's not the way it is. The Jews have not been swept aside. So you've got three chapters, and that's where we are right now, talking about how God hasn't abandoned his chosen people either. And uh, then later on this autumn... We'll get into chapters 12 to 16, which talks very practically about how you work this out. If you realise this is the truth, if you've taken this on board, how should you live as a result? Well, that's chapters 12 to 16, and we'll get there. But as I say right now, this is where we are in the middle of chapters 9 to 11. Now, last time we spoke about this, we talked about chapter 9, which is a pretty complicated chapter. If there is a more complicated chapter, it is chapter 10, but don't worry about that. We'll get there. We'll get there. And uh, we said that one of the things in chapter 9 is that Paul is tackling this whole problem of the Jewish-Gentile uh, situation. 
Okay, I'm saying that the gospel is good news, that God made this way for everybody to come into his kingdom, but there are lots of people who don't seem to be too interested, and an awful lot of them seem to be Jewish. And you can imagine the people in the church in Rome saying to Phoebe, the, the woman who brought Romans, uh, the, the epistle to Romans to the, the church in Rome, Phoebe, this is all great so far, the first eight chapters, but look around you. There are lots of Jewish people in Rome, and they don't all seem to be becoming Christians. Some of them are, and if you look at the end of chapter 16, you'll find an awful lot of Jewish names mentioned of people that Paul wants to greet at the end of his letter, and they are Jews. But it's not all Jews by any means. And people who are non-Jews seem to be more interested in the gospel than Jews. How does that work? God made a mistake somewhere. And in chapter 9, uh, Paul has been saying, well, no, that God has made no mistake. God hasn't done anything wrong. There's nothing wrong with him. And there's nothing wrong with the way he's presented it to people. Um, but we saw last time that there are two sides to what happens when somebody becomes a Christian. First of all, you choose. <laughs> and the New Testament uh, talks about persuading, imploring, appealing to people to make that big decision that will bring God into your life. But also there are other verses that talk about God choosing. In him we were also chosen. It talks about God predestining people, making it, choosing them before time to, 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 to be part of his kingdom. How do those two things to fit together? We can't see it. We can't understand it. But we know that both things are true. And so Paul tackled the, 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 the God chooses bit in chapter 9. He said, listen, from God's side, God's plan hasn't failed. God's decisions aren't unfair. And God's ways can't be examined. We can't decide whether or not God is, is, is doing it right because we just don't have the data. We are human beings and we can't understand anything of the, the situation in which we find ourselves plunged. We don't understand the workings of the universe. And the ways of God are just beyond our examination. There's a verse in the book of Ecclesiastes that says, What is lacking cannot be counted. What does that mean? Well, basically what it's saying is, if I ask you to do a mental arithmetic sum in your head, Multiply 593 by 16, subtract 289, and add a little bit more. What's the answer? You'd say, uh, what's a little bit more? Say, no, no, just never mind. Tell me the answer. Uh, can't do it. You can't add the sum together. You can't c come to any sort of result because there's one factor in there that you don't know. You don't understand. And Ecclesiastes says it's, that, it's like that with the ways of God. What is lacking cannot be counted. We understand certain things about the universe. We've now got a fantastic telescope that can show us lots of galaxies that we didn't even know were there. We're making medical advances every day. But what is lacking cannot be counted. There are all sorts of stuff about the universe and the way it fits together, the ways of God, why he's done things, how he's done things, that we just don't understand. So we can't sit in judgment on that. And so, well, we'll leave this one out, but that was last time as well. Um, so this, now in chapter 10, Paul swings around and says, let's look at the other side of it. Human response. God's choosing, we can't criticize the ways of God. Okay, let's leave that. Let's go on to how human beings react. And so he starts by saying, once again, I'm really concerned about the Jews. I'm Jewish myself, and I want them to be saved. You might think, yeah, yeah, Paul, you said that right back at the start of chapter 9. You even said that you wished you were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of your brothers. Yeah, that's pretty strong. You don't need to say it again. But he does say it again because he says, listen, when you look at the response of human beings to the gospel, I want you to bear this in mind. I'm not criticizing my own people. I'm just saying I wish, I just wish they'd come in on what God is offering. 
It's as if, you know, you're running a supermarket. You, you give the best uh, bargain offer of all time. Buy one, get five, free £10 note to everybody at the checkout, you know, and then you sit back and wait for the crowds to arrive. And the only crowds that arrive are the people you don't expect. And you see 20 people through the door by lunchtime. You think, what's the matter? Is the problem with your special offer? No, it's not. That's chapter 9. Is the problem with the people who come in? Well, that's what Paul has to look at now. And he says, the first thing you notice about the Jews is that they have a zeal. They really do. They're proud of the word of God. They're keen on being the people of God. And through many centuries, they've just hung on tenaciously to what they believe. The mere fact that Israel was still standing in the first century was incredible. Because if you look at the history they had in the Bible, and even more, the history after the Old Testament is finished, before the time of Jesus, they should have been wiped out of existence by one empire or another again and again and again. And yet they kept on coming back. A bit like Poland. Poland in the 18th century was carved up between three great world powers. It just ceased to exist. Plenty of Poles still around today. In the 19th century, they would come back. They just would not be pushed over. And the Jews were a bit like that. And Paul said, they're zealous enough, but it's not zeal according to knowledge. Now, you might be wondering why this ship is painted in such an unusual and tasteful way. <laughs> That's because this is First World War camouflage. This ship is the US, USS Leviathan, one of the biggest ships that the, the United States Navy ever had. It shouldn't have been in the Navy, actually, because it was originally a, a, a German liner called the Vaterland, and it just had the bad fortune to be in the harbor in New York when war was declared. <laughs> and so the Americans snaffled it and said, right, you're having that. It's not a German ship anymore, it's one of ours. It was a, a very luxurious liner. This is the indoor swimming pool that they had, and uh, it was said that the night watchman had to do a 12-mile hike every night to get right round the ship incredibly big ship and it would hold all sorts of people and it was used as a ship because the United States desperately wanted to send people across to Europe to fight in the First World War and they had plenty of zeal they put thousands and thousands of soldiers on that ship and sent them across problem was it was the time when the influenza outbreak the great pandemic of 1917 to 18 was just taking place and people were falling sick all over the place so when you take 10,000 soldiers and 2,000 auxiliary staff and you put them on the same ship, it looks very impressive. But my, nobody realized just how desperate it was going to be. The first person to die died when they were only three days out on the way to Europe. By the time they got to Europe, so many of them were sick and so many had died already that uh, uh, they had to uh, leave 120 people on the ship when everybody else uh, disembarked because they were obviously in the last age of their life. They had to march four miles to get to the camp where they were supposed to be stationed. And on the way, 400 more people dropped out, couldn't walk, taken away. Most of them died. And one uh, history book of the Leviathan says this, the tragedy of the Leviathan illustrated the way in which a troop ship could become a liability to the Allies. The vessel and ships like her were no more than floating incubators for a virus which erupted once it hit dry land. And the large number of those sol soldiers who uh, embarked on their way to Europe were killed not by German bullets, <laughs> but by influenza. Plenty of zeal. Let's get them out there. Let's send them across the Atlantic. There's no time to waste. But a death sentence all the same. 
And sadly, it can be like that, can't it? You can be doing the right thing in the wrong direction and producing awful results. And Paul says that's the trouble with the Jews. Zeal, yeah, plenty of enthusiasm, but it's all going in the wrong way. And they're finding the wrong answer to the problem they're facing. What is the problem they're facing? What are they trying to solve? The big question for everybody in the world, I guess, is how do I get right with God? Because if you face it, uh, all of us know that we've done things that are wrong. We all have a guilty conscience. And we all know that if there is a God who is the standard of good and, and right, far higher than we are. And if he sees everything we do, and if he knows every guilty, furtive thought we've ever had, then we stand condemned before him. How do you get right with a God like that? And Paul talks about two possible answers in chapter 10. One answer is this. He says, this is what the Jews were trying to do. I work hard and I do it myself. I try to keep the law. I give myself as good a conscience as I possibly can before God. But there's another way, says Paul, and the other way is to stop trying. Simply to accept God's mercy. To go to God and say, I can never do this by myself. I need someone else to come in and pay the price for me. And Paul says the good news is that Jesus has already done that. He died on the cross to make it possible for all of us to have a whole new life. And so he, he distinguishes between these two ways of trying to find righteousness, being right with God. And he says the first way is the righteousness that is by the law. Just keep the law and you'll be okay. The second one is the righteousness that is by faith. Now this is getting pretty complicated already, isn't it? And uh, I have to admit that Romans chapter 10 is not many people's favorite chapter of the book of Romans. There's one verse in it that people talk about an awful lot, and they even sing songs about it in Sunday school, don't they? Romans 10 and 9 is a favorite verse of mine. Confessing Christ as Lord, I am saved by grace, and so and so on. But um, you didn't want to recite this morning. But most of chapter 10 doesn't really appeal to people. Why not? Well, there are three things. First of all, it's full of quotations. There is no passage of Romans where Paul stuffs in as many bits of the Old Testament as he does here. Because he wants to ground absolutely everything in what God has already said to his people in the past. And he wants to show to a Jewish audience that all of what he's saying is not some deviation from what they've always believed. Actually, it's the outcome of the whole thing. And when he says um, at the start of chapter 10, Christ is the end of the law, so there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. He's not just saying Christ means that the old law doesn't apply anymore. That's not what he means. The end of the law means the purpose of the law, the aim, what the law was always heading towards. And Christ is the aim of the whole law. So in Jesus, you find the Old Testament coming to life. And uh, uh, that means you have to quote lots of the Old Testament, but that's not always popular. Second thing is the argument isn't always easy to follow. Paul is talking in a way that people in those days would have argued, and for us it's a little bit more difficult to follow. But we'll get through it in the next ten minutes, don't worry. And the third thing is, of course, it's all about Jews, and I'm not Jewish. <laughs> and certainly that's right. Paul here in chapter 10 is talking to the Jews more than anybody else. It's easy to say, well, I'll leave that to the Jews to figure out. I'll move on to chapter 11. Mistake. Why? Well, because there are three things in Romans 10 which are important for everybody to know about. The first thing it talks about, which is important for everybody, Jewish or non-Jewish, is what you do to find God. That's why Romans 10.9 is a favourite verse of whoever wrote that song. <laughs> it's because it's one of the most important verses in the Bible. And it says more clearly, it spells out more definitely than anywhere else, what you actually have to do to become right with God. 
The second thing the chapter talks about is what God does to find you. That's in the bit we've not read yet, but we'll get there. And the third thing is, it talks about how you can mess the whole process up. How you can miss out on everything that God's got to offer. So, let's have a look at those three things. First of all, what do you do to find God? Well, this is where Paul makes his first uh, set of quotations. Uh, In uh, verse 5, he says, Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. Do you remember what that means, the righteousness that is by the law? That means trying to do it your own way. And he says, the person who does these things will live by them. Certainly, that is something that Moses said in the book of Leviticus, in chapter 18 and verse 5. He says, this is a deal with God. If you can keep the law I have given you, the law we were given on Mount Sinai, the law that comes straight from God and I've passed on to you, if you can keep that, then you will live by these. If you don't, then you don't live. And he says at the end of Deuteronomy, Behold, I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, therefore choose life that you may live. But Paul says that's a righteousness that is by law. But there is also, he says, in Moses, a righteousness that is by faith. And he quotes a little bit of Deuteronomy 30. Now, Deuteronomy 30 is at the end of Moses' life, and he's talking there about uh, the kinds of, the, the need that the Israelites have to keep God's law and listen to God's voice. He says, you haven't done it perfectly. He's talking to them just after they've broken God's law and turned away from the promises he made. And yet Moses is not saying, whoa, you people are in trouble now because uh, you have not kept the law and therefore God is, is justified in sending you to the deepest pit of hell. He's not saying that. No, he's holding out hope. He's saying, listen, take this stuff seriously. And when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul according to everything I've commanded you to do, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the lands where he scattered you. And he said, you know, I can't tell you exactly how this is going to happen in the future, but God is going to find a way of making you different people. He says in verse 6, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the heart of your descendants. He'll place his stamp upon your heart so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. You've been struggling to keep the law. God's going to put a love into your heart for him. And Moses is talking about stuff which is hundreds of years in the future and he doesn't know how it's going to happen, but he just says, God is going to do this. And so he says uh, these verses that that, uh, Paul quotes in Romans chapter 10. What God is asking you to do is not up in the sky. It's not across the sea. It's not impossible to get to. What you need to do is going to be really close to you. It will be in your mouth and it will be in your heart. And that's what Moses predicts. And uh, Paul says this is the righteousness that is by faith. This is a kind of righteousness that says you don't have to do it yourself. All you have to do is allow God to do it to you. Moses was looking forward to the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus that would bring Jesus' life inside us, that would allow us to receive the Holy Spirit and be changed as people. He didn't know the details, but he knew it was going. And right through the Old Testament, you get these prophecies going, don't you, about God taking away your heart of stone and giving you a breathing, beating, physical, living heart, and and all of that stuff, until eventually, with Jesus, the whole thing arrives. And so, Paul goes on into this famous verse, Romans chapter uh, 10, verse 9, and says this, So it's your mouth 
and your heart that are involved. He says this, you want to be saved? You want to be right with God? Okay, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Then he explains, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. There are these two bits, the mouth and the heart. With your mouth you say, Jesus is Lord. Now, that might not sound a particularly big thing to say. You can see it, it's a text written above the pulpit in lots of churches these days. But actually, in those days, that was radical. Because the big phrase that every Roman citizen was supposed to say was, Caesar is Lord. And that meant Caesar was the ultimate ruler. He was the one who controlled the whole of life. He was the one to whom you were responsible more than you were responsible for the gods on Mount Olympus or anything like that. Your real boss, your, your inspiration, the center of your life was Caesar. And the Christians dared to say, it's not Caesar, it's Jesus. And so declaring with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, it says, I am different. I have a different allegiance. I belong to somebody else. And believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Well, there's your mouth. Your mouth admits that Jesus is the Lord and therefore he's in charge. Your heart says Jesus is alive. Now you might say, why have you pointed the arrow there? Because this lady's heart is a little bit further down. But actually, yes. Um, and they knew where the heart was in those days. But by the heart, they meant the bit you think with. <laughs> they meant the center of your life. The boardroom of your life where all the decisions get made. And your heart in the Bible is not the sort of sentimental Valentine's Day bit. It's the center of your intentions and ambitions and the center of the decisions that you make that decide who you are. So with your heart, you confess that Jesus is alive, that God has raised him from the dead. And if you believe in here that Jesus is alive, that he's risen from the dead and he's now the Lord of heaven and earth, then your life has to change on the outside as a result, doesn't it? You live in a new kind of a way because you not only believe that Jesus is Lord, but that he's living moment by moment and he's right there with you. That is how you become a Christian. To put it another way, here's a, a group in which uh, the one guy is a Christian. Um, I just realized after I'd drawn this slide that he's wearing a T-shirt or a, a hoodie that says, Dance to the Beat in your heart <laughs> and that's not bad really for a Christian because the first thing is inside you something happens the risen Jesus lives there you believe in your heart that God has raised from the dead and Jesus life starts to be your life he's there as your friend your constant companion day by day but things happen outside you as well because you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and this guy has told his friends that he's a Christian. Outside, he's identifying Jesus. They know where he stands. And he's following Jesus. What he says what he does is different from other people. Sometimes his friends look at him and think, oh, that was different. I wouldn't have made that choice. I wouldn't have gone that way. He's reacted in this situation in the way I didn't expect. He looks a bit like Jesus. And that's how it is, isn't it? We identify with Jesus and say, look, I'm a follower of Jesus. And we're not perfect and we don't know it right and we slip and we stumble again and again. Our conduct starts to imitate the conduct of Jesus more and more. And Paul says, if you've got those two things going for you, you are saved. You've been rescued by God. 
And so if that is not true of you, have a chat to somebody afterwards, because this is the most important thing in the whole of the book of Romans. This is how you are rescued by God and given a whole new life. But there's a second thing. What does God do to find you? Well, we're past half past already, but we need to read some more verses. So let's just read them very quickly. And being a Scots, I have no problem with that. Verse 14. How then, he says, shall they, can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And... Uh, so here he gives a little sketch of what God has already done so that people can make that decision. First of all, he says he sends people. How can they hear without someone coming to them? And uh, in many versions it says, how can they hear without a preacher? But we're not really talking about somebody doing the stuff that I'm doing this morning. We're talking about anybody who communicates, who heralds forth what the gospel is all about. It can be in quite informal circumstances. Sitting on a bus, talking on somebody's doorstep having a chat at work over a, your lunchtime sandwich. It can be all sorts of things. But God will send people into the life of other people to communicate the good news to them. And when that happens, they pass on the message. They might not even realize they're doing it some of the time. But the message will get through, says Paul, because God designs it that way. And when people receive the message, then they believe. How can they believe unless they've heard? And when they believe, then there's another step that has to happen, because just believing in your head doesn't take you anywhere, does it? It's when it comes into action in your life, through your heart, through your mouth, confessing Jesus and knowing that he's alive and the Lord of life. And so the next thing you do is you call on him and you say, Jesus, I don't know if you're there or not, but I'm prepared to believe you are. You've done something to my friend right there, and I want you to do the same for me. So I submit to you. I make you my Lord. I thank you for dying for me and I ask you to forgive me for my sins and start on a whole new course. And Paul says, when those last two things happen, that's what's called faith. Somebody has faith in God and, 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 and it's amazing how that happens. And we need to share our faith with anybody who will listen because that will happen in case after case. We don't know how. I was talking last night, we just got back from Holly, and the phone rang, and I thought, oh dear me, here I am for 20 minutes, because the guy on the other end of the line is somebody I knew when he was a teenager. He's autistic, he's quite brilliant in his own way, but he's, he's, he's very, very kind of self-obsessed, and when he rings up, uh, and you answer the phone, he never asks, how are you doing, what are you up to, is this a good time to call? He just plunges straight into whatever it is he wants to talk about. So getting off the phone can be quite an art. We managed it about 10 minutes last night, so that wasn't too bad. But, uh, but I met him when he was a student at college, and he comes from a desperate family. He really does. And he's had very little care and attention in his life. And as I say, he's, he's, he's autistic. He's on the spectrum anyway. And uh, he was absolutely convinced that Jesus was really a Buddhist. And I remember the first time I was introduced to him, I thought, this guy is a million miles from understanding anything about the gospel. Well, you know what? Within two weeks, he'd become a Christian. I couldn't believe it to start with. And he's still weird. He's still odd. But the way in which he's changed over the last years, he's 26 now. I knew him maybe 10 years ago to start with. The way in which he's changed is just remarkable. And I don't know how that happens. And there's a verse in the hymn that says, I'd know not how the Spirit moves, convincing sin of sin, revealing Jesus through the Word, creating faith in him but I know whom I have believed. And that's all you need to know. 
If you know Jesus, you just witness to that. You just allow other people to see Jesus in you. You tell them about it when you get the chance. And God is the one who produces the faith. And Paul says, faith comes by hearing. <laughs> and hearing comes from God's word. And so he retraces the process. Faith, hearing, God's word. He says, God has put all of this stuff in place so that we can become Christians. He's made it as easy as he possibly can. And so if you hear the word and you're convicted by it, you have to respond to it. But that's what reaches, you'll be glad to hear, the final point we have to make. And the final bit of the chapter says, how can you mess it up? And Paul goes back from that to say, but not all the Israelites believed the good news. This is verse 16. Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. The message is heard through the word of Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. And so Paul starts here to talk in, in, in different uh, bits of, of, of the passage. Verse 18, verse 19, verse 20 to 21. About reasons why it might be that the Jews have not said, yes, please, and flooded in to accept the gospel. The first question that he's asked in verse 18 is, didn't they hear? He says, yep, the gospel has gone everywhere. Right around the Mediterranean already. People are talking about the gospel right, left, and center. People are becoming Christians. The, the word is going out all over the place. And I've always gone to the synagogues first, and every city I've gone to, so they've heard all right. And he goes in verse 19 saying, okay, if they've heard, again I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. So, no, they understood all right. The Gentiles did not understand, and they've responded. But the Jews knew exactly what was going on. They could see the point of the whole thing, and they're not responding. So verse 20 to 21 puts the other possibility. And he says, maybe they don't want to listen. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those that did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. That's the Gentiles. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. See, there's three barriers. There's the human being on one side. There's the gospel, the cross, the story of the resurrection on the other. And in the middle, theoretically, there's nothing. We have a choice that we can make. But we put up some barriers sometimes. And Paul talks about three of them. The first is envy. Uh, he quotes uh, uh, Moses again and says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And sometimes, you know, people look at Christians and think, I wish I had what they got, they had. But, but they seem so confident, they seem so assured. It can't be right. People like that, God can't accept them. And they're envious. Uh, C.S. Lewis says, you know, when you sit there in church, and I watch the baker who cheated me last week, walking up the aisle to take communion. I can feel, this is not right. This should not be allowed. But if God has accepted him, I can't be envious of that. And it, isn't it tragic that you would push the truth away from you because you just don't like some of the people who accept it already. But that's what Paul says is going on here. Second thing is effort. Um, they've tried and they've tried and they've tried to find God by their own route, but they're not prepared to go by the, the only route that God will accept which is to lay down your, your ability to impress him and to say, God, I surrender. I want you to be charged instead. And the third barrier is just unwillingness. 
All day long, says God in the Old Testament, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. And ultimately, this is the third way we can mess it up. <laughs> we put up this barrier of unwillingness. We think, don't think we need it. Not right now yet, anyway. We think somehow there might be another way. We just put it on the back burner for the time being and refuse to accept what God wants to do to us simply because we don't want to put ourselves, if we're honest, under the, the rule of anybody else. We want to be free to spend our lives exactly how we want. Not realize that it's only when God puts his hands on your life that you achieve the fullness of life, the, the abundance of life that he actually wants you to have. So chapter 10 poses a big question, doesn't it? And it's not just a question for Jewish people. It's a question for you and me too. And if you're not a Christian, then do talk to somebody about it afterwards because this is the most important thing, the most important decision you will ever make in your life. And if you are a Christian, be prepared over this next week as God puts other people in your way, not to bash them over the head with the Bible, but to be used, whether consciously or unconsciously, as somebody who is living so close to God that you can just demonstrate the life of Jesus to other people. Be identified. Make sure they know who you are so that what they see in you, they'll not put down to your sterling character, they'll just start seeing Jesus. Go out and tell them. Because, says Paul, it's the most important message in the world. People need to hear it. Let's pray together before I hand back to Kev, shall we? Heavenly Father, it's been a long one this morning because it's been a complicated passage, but such important issues involved in it. Help all of us to be clear in our hearts that Jesus is alive and is ruling in us. And help us with our mouths to go out and confess in word, action, and deed, and relationship to the rest of the world exactly what you've done for us by coming into our lives. Help us get the outside and the inside right. And Father, having done that ourselves, make us willing to be messengers. How will they hear if somebody isn't there to talk to them? Send us to more people. Make them open. Make us ready. Help us always to be ready with an, a reason for the hope that's in us. And make us servants of yours who, in a world without too much light, can stand out as beacons in the darkness that help people find the reality of Jesus and the reality of real life. For your name's sake. Amen.